Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. With one exception, you would have been well within your rights to feel any number of valid emotions as the Capitol building was assaulted by domestic terrorists this past week. First and foremost, I imagine you were seized by a rush of concern for the well-being of our legislative leaders, law enforcement officers, and civil servants whose lives stood at risk. I have to believe that many of you experienced, as I did, a wave of revulsion upon witnessing the sacrilege committed as a citadel of our democracy was ransacked by vandals. As Jews, we were all horrified at the sight of a mob brandishing Nazi flags, slogans, and symbols, including T-shirts with the words Camp Auschwitz or 6MWE, code for 6 million, wasn't enough. At some point, you may have felt anger, recalling last summer's public mobilization of law enforcement and Bible-toting politicians in response to protests for racial justice and the lack thereof the other day. As Americans, you may have felt a deep sense of shame, knowing that the images we were watching were being viewed around the world, our great democracy reduced to the butt of a joke for the Khomeini's Putins and Kim Jong-uns of the the globe. And I suspect many of us experienced a real sense of fear In the short-term fear that the domestic disarray of Wednesday provided our enemies with a window to do us harm, and fear that in the long term the events of this past week will be remembered as a tipping point for the crumbling of our nation. Anger, fear, revulsion, horror, concern, to name but a few of the valid emotions we may have felt in the week gone by. I felt them, we all felt them, and though it provides little relief as a pastor to his flock, I hope that there is some comfort in your knowing that you are not alone in your feelings. Others feel the same way, and that knowledge that these feelings are shared somehow anchors our common humanity, a reminder that this is not the way the world should be. But there's one emotion I will not affirm. One reaction, I will not validate. One response that if you felt it, you should know that it's less about those barbarians at the gate than it is about you, and that emotion is surprise. Shocked, yes. Surprise, no way. Like a pitch coming over the plate in slow motion, all of us saw the events of Wednesday coming. Earlier in the day, when Trump incited the crowd to insurrection, 
the stop the steal rallies in the weeks preceding as Trump fueled the fire with promises that he would never concede, inflammatory rhetoric that continued even as the takeover of the Capitol building was in full swing. You don't need to be a behavioral psychologist to understand that when an authority figure makes repeated claims that something has been stolen, eventually the aggrieved party will try to take it back. But the storming of the Capitol was an event that can be traced to well before January 6th, before Election Day, and before the election cycle. There is a direct line between the actions and personalities of Wednesday with those of Charlottesville of August of 2017. There is a direct connection between this week's violence and the murder of Heather Heyer. There is a direct connection between Trump's We Love You, You're Very Special and some very fine people on both sides. There is a direct line between the Nazi slogans brandished this week and the Charlottesville chants of Jews will not replace us. And while we're at it, Pittsburgh's tree of life shooting as well. There is nothing surprising here. Not days, not weeks, not months, but years. Years we've seen this coming. I am reminded of the Hemingway line when asked, how did you go bankrupt? The answer two ways. Gradually, and then suddenly. Wednesday may have been the day the bottom fell out, but Wednesday's arrival was anything but sudden. It was not a surprise. When we tell the story of this week's Torah reading, Exodus, more often than not in the movies and the Passover Haggadah, we begin the story with slavery. Avadim hayinu We were once slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And if the book of Exodus started at chapter 2, you would not be wrong. An enslaved people led to freedom by way of God's mighty hand. But there is a chapter 1. And this morning I want to suggest to you that to ignore the story of that chapter, the story of how it is we became slaves, is to miss not just a critical dimension of the text, but also the broader arc of the narrative and for that matter its enduring message for us today. Because when the children of Israel first arrived in Egypt, they were anything but oppressed. The extended family of Joseph held an important place in the Egyptian imagination and Egyptian society. Numerous and prolific, yes, slaves, no. But then in chapter 1, verse 8, the temperature begins to change. Vayakam Melachadash, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know. Asher lo yadat Yosef. Biblical knowledge is never just ordinary knowledge. This verse is meant to signal a more substantive cultural shift taking place. Not only did this new Pharaoh not know the Israelites, but he felt threatened by them. Or maybe he just needed to point to a people who were a little different in order to secure his own base. In the modern vernacular, we would call it the act of othering, a country that was once defined by us is transformed to an us and a them. Pharaoh understood the dynamic at play, and so he played on that fear, and he mixed it with hate, and he branded the Israelites a fifth column, an enemy from within. It was a 13th Spanish century Spanish commentary commentator, Nachmanides, who makes explicit Pharaoh's shrewd strategy to oppress the Israelites. It didn't happen all at once. Pharaoh suspected that there would be resistance, so he first changed the cultural climate, then he changed the laws, then he changed the definition of truth. 
all very slowly and all very subtly, so subtly that when the decree to kill the Israelite boys finally came, it seemed neither odd nor objectionable. So too with slavery, what began as labor became by way of attacks, forced labor, then backbreaking labor. And by the time anyone looked up, the children of Israel were ruthlessly enslaved. Not one, not two, not three, but four deliberate stages Nachmanides identifies, each one chipping away at civil society, each one normalizing what would have otherwise been unconscionable, an incremental process discernible with hindsight, far more difficult to see in the moment. But the key to it all was not the taskmasters, nor for that matter, Pharaoh himself. Social norms could not have come undone solely due to the designs of one man. It took the complicity of many others for Pharaoh's designs to take shape. I imagine the initial befuddlement of the typical Egyptian when that nice Israelite neighbor would be deemed other and less than than the day before. Maybe Joe Egyptian thought that the bile Pharaoh was spewing could just be shrugged off. The indulgent excesses of a charismatic leader, that's just Pharaoh being Pharaoh. There may have been some self-interest involved, a sort of compartmentalizing Faustian self-dealing. All right, I don't like the guy, but he's good for Egypt. He projects strength, and just look at all this construction. These pyramids not only boost the economy, but they represent a golden age gone by. There may have been all sorts of reasons to give Pharaoh pass. And let's be honest, at a certain point, it gets kind of uncomfortable to take a stand, to be the odd one out. In an authoritarian context, there is no one moment when dissent dies. There's no bell that rings. The line between self-interest and self-preservation is not a clear one. Conscience just sort of crumbles until, like a frog in the frying pan, by the time you're thinking of jumping, it's too late. The unraveling of Egyptian society neither happened all at once, nor was it solely due to the deeds of one person, one person at a time. There was complicity, there was enabling, there was inertia, there was fear, there was self-interest, and yeah, there were undoubtedly true believers who were just waiting for a leader willing to finally tell it like it is, but those people... They're always there, and they'll act openly only when they believe they can get away with it. As de Tocqueville wrote, society is endangered not by the great profligacy of a few, but by the laxity of morals amongst all. Why did the bottom fall out? Because it happened slowly, because it happened subtly, and because, to paraphrase President Obama, there came a point when no one was willing to say, this is going too far. This isn't what we stand for. Even reasonable people who, when push came to shove, would push back. The first chapter of Exodus is not a pretty one. But the good news is that it's only one chapter, and it's only the first one. We have to understand how the Israelites became slaves, not just because it's part of the story, but because it explains the rest of the story. Remember, Moses survives his birth by way of an act of civil disobedience by the midwives. It's altogether significant that the road to redemption begins with the decision of the lowly midwives disobeying the decree of an all-powerful Pharaoh. It teaches that moral courage is within everyone's reach. 
so too it's altogether significant that it's Pharaoh's daughter who saves Moses, teaching that no matter how close you are to the throne, even as close as Pharaoh's daughter, there can be no abdication of empathy, empathy and conscience. The fact that Moses risks and then loses everything by striking down the Egyptian who was assaulting a slave affirms that moral leadership comes not by way of protecting self-interest, but by protecting the interests of the very person who has no one else to protect them. The pattern is clear. If the step-by-step degradation of Egyptian society happened by way of individuals justifying their complicity until it was too late, then the converse is true for redemption. The road to redemption didn't happen all at once and in mass with the splitting of the sea. Redemption happens step by step, one upstander at a time, making decisions small and large to push back, deciding not to bend one's conscience, but to bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice. The Exodus story reminds us not only that no matter how dark is the night, the dawn of redemption beckons, it also reminds us to never underestimate the role that every individual, that each one of us plays in bringing about that light. Friends, we're living through history. We will remember the events of this past week for the rest of our lives. It's a lot to take in and we can all be forgiven. I certainly hope you'll forgive me for fumbling for the answers or even the right questions to ask. I don't know exactly when the first domino fell, ultimately leading to Wednesday's attack. I don't know where the precise line is between Trump and Trumpism, what part is a disease and what part is a symptom. I can't tell you how much of the right wing's toxic hate is particular to them and how much is part of a hyper-polarization of society as a whole that includes both the far right and the far left. And I certainly don't know if the events of Wednesday will be remembered as a moment of our nation coming undone or it will be standing as a have you no decency turning point to civility. Hindsight takes no great shakes. Prescience and prophecy, they're a bit harder to come by. There is far more we don't know than we do know. But what I do know is this. Violence is violence. There is no justification, no moral equivocation, no bigger context to be understood regarding the lawless behavior we witnessed this past week in Charlottesville and Pittsburgh and Poway. This is not about dissent, the marketplace of ideas, freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. This is criminal activity and both the perpetrators and those who incited it must be held accountable. And what I also know is that words matter because whether it's a Capitol being ransacked, Rabin being assassinated, or any number of traumas in the distant or recent past, bloodshed does not materialize out of thin air. Lies have consequences. Hateful speech functions as a super spreader with far-reaching and violent results. There is a reason the rabbis equated evil speech with bloodshed because they understood the connection and so must we. Nobody anywhere on the political spectrum should get a pass for hate speech, for willful and malicious distortions and for out and out lies. If we wanna stem the violence, then we need to start the clock well before and call out the forces that give our cultural fires their oxygen. Finally, I know 
that to be a Jew is to take personal agency for our roles in the unfolding drama of our lives. As Heschel wrote, indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It is more universal, more contagious, and more dangerous. Remember, the defining moment of Moses' moral development was when he saw his kinsmen oppressed. He looked this way and that way, and he realized that nobody was stepping up, and so he stepped up. And ever since, we know that it's by this metric that our moral worth is measured, whether in the face of it all we choose the path of indifference or we declare ourselves as stakeholders in the moral health of our society. As taught in the Ethics of the Fathers, in the place where there are no upstanders, be an upstander. It's really not more complicated than that. The only question is whether as a nation and as individuals, we will learn from this dark week and step up to the calling of the hour. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.